Yes. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock and roll. About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Let me tell you about Queen Latifah. Academy Award nominee, Emmy and Golden Globe winner, Cleo and Set It Off, matron Mama Morton in Chicago, plus a hundred other characters in between, from an empowering R&B producer in Hairspray to a motherly animated woolly mammoth in the Ice Age franchise. Her decades of acting credentials have earned her a Lifetime Achievement Award from BET and a literal lifetime of media attention and accolades. But this isn't about Queen Latifah, the actress, superstar of the silver screen that she is. This is about the woman who burst into the entertainment industry without any scripts or prior acting skills. This is about Dana Owens, the teenager who ascended to royal status in rap at a time when the genre revolved around putting women down and keeping them down. The fire MC who told the generation of hip-hop heads that women could reign just as well as any man. She called herself a queen when most men in the industry couldn't be bothered to call women anything but bitches and hoes. With her rhyme, she didn't just demand respect for herself. She demanded it on behalf of her sisters everywhere. This is about Queen Latifah, the rapper. I'm Nikki Lynette. And this story is about a girl. Eight-year-old Dana Owens clutched the book in her hands like it was the Bible. She scanned the names on each page, waiting with anticipation for one to pop off the paper. She needed a word that clicked with her personality, something that would feel like home. The names she read thus far weren't doing it for her. Aisha, Karima, Salima. That's the name her cousin Sharonda picked. In the late 1970s, all the kids in Newark, New Jersey, were giving themselves Muslim names. Sharonda picked hers with the same book of Arabic names Dana was flipping through now. Her older brother had already adopted the name Jamil, although nothing could stop Dana and her mother from calling him their family-appointed nickname, Winky. 
Apparently, he was quite the charmer as a baby, always struggling to hold both of his eyes open after lengthy naps, hence the winking name. Dana craved a name that fit her just as well. Even in elementary school, she knew that names were more than something to just scribble at the top of her homework. What she called herself and how she chose to present herself to the world mattered. It set a precedent for how she would be treated by everyone around her. She rejected the label of tomboy when the kids at school poked fun at her rugged presence on the ball field. She climbed trees and played kickball. So what? She could whoop your ass, too. She insisted she wasn't a tomboy. She was just Dana. Period. In reality, she knew deep down it would be nice to be a little more than just Dana. Dana already had roles assigned to her. Daughter. Sister. Friend. Whatever name Dana picked from this book would be her name and would belong only to herself. Finally, she spotted it. Latifah. A name smooth as butter. Her cousin's book said it meant delicate, sensitive, kind. That was the person Dana wanted to be. It was settled then. She was the delicate, sensitive, and kind Latifah from that moment forward. After all, her mother Rita told her she could be anything, didn't she? There was no negativity in the air at apartment 3K in Hyatt Court, a housing project in Newark. Only warmth and uplifting ambition. That apartment wouldn't be their permanent home if Rita Owens had anything to say about it. She saw the apartment as a temporary resting place for a single mother to gather herself and her two children while she sorted out the aftermath of her recent divorce from Latifah and Winky's father. Don't get comfortable here, Rita would warn the kids. Hyatt Court was nothing but one stop on the journey to their real home. Rita didn't know where that would be yet, but she wasn't wasting any time getting there. Rita's days started with work, ended with work, and sandwiched night classes and glorified naps in between. When she wasn't working at the local Holiday Inn as a maid and waitress, she was sorting packages at the post office and working shifts as a janitor. She worked three jobs every day with barely enough time to sleep for two hours, maybe three hours if she was lucky. Rita had plenty more to worry about than just a down payment on a new home. There were drum and guitar lessons for Latifah, plus Catholic school tuition for both of her children and all the expenses that come with private school, like tidy matching uniforms. Every day, Rita sent her children into the world in their freshly ironed white button-up shirts with their heads held high. Just because you're living in the projects doesn't mean you of the projects, she reminded Latifah and Winky. Some of the neighbors thought that the Owens family held their heads a little too high. Latifah heard their whispers about how Rita Owens was a snooty bitch. If this bothered her mother, she never let it show. These people's opinions didn't matter anyways. They weren't going to be neighbors for long. Sure enough, Rita quickly managed to put aside enough money for a down payment on a petite house on Central Avenue and 12th Street. Her mother made it a point to lead by example. If you put your mind to it, you could do anything. The radiance of Rita's determination and encouragement never once dimmed during Latifah's childhood. But sometimes, Latifah just had to prove her abilities to herself. Like performing for the first time. 
in front of her entire high school. It was a scene straight out of a movie. Latifa poured her focus into keeping her cool on stage, but somehow she was still sweating. To the people in the crowd, she wasn't Latifa or even Dana. She was that new sophomore who recently transferred to Irvington High, otherwise known as a newbie, a nobody. What if they hated her? Latifa heard the booing ring in her ears like a premonition. Then a voice inside of her dared to flip the script. What if they loved her? The imaginary booing in her head fizzled out as she considered the idea. Actually, what if they couldn't get enough of her? Latifa let her gaze settle on the first stranger who was kind enough to offer her a smile. That was the tipping point. Latifa surrendered herself to a rendition of If Only For One Night by Luther Vandross. Those music lessons that Rita broke her back for paid off. Latifa's vocals soared through the auditorium. Faces shifted from indifference to impressed, but Latifa never let her eyes stray far from that kind, grinning stranger. When she finished, the crowd leapt to their feet for a standing ovation. Latifa had herself to thank for the courage that afternoon, but her mother to thank for the music lessons and the confidence. Someday, Latifa would have to thank her mother for her musical Rolodex, too. By the time Latifa was in high school, her mother was just as involved in the arts as she was. Rita's days of juggling three back-breaking jobs ended when she accepted a position teaching art at Irvington High School. When she wasn't leading classes, she was organizing the school's cultural activities, booking the freshest musicians to perform at dances and similar events. She had the hookup with some of the best DJs in Newark, including Mark the 45 King. Mark stacked his hip-hop creds high as his crates of vinyl. Not only was he from the Bronx, a.k.a. the Holy Land where hip-hop began, but he could make killer beats from obscure 45s you had never even heard of. People in the know called his basement studio New Jersey's Rap Central. If you wanted to be successful and you had a new set of rhymes, you took them down to Mark's basement and tested them over some of Mark's mixes, hoping for a hit. In Latifah's teenage years, hip-hop was hip as hell and still picking up speed. Every time she stopped by Mark's basement to witness fresh MCs on the mic, she recognized the genre for what it was, the newest shared experience for young people like her. The hip-hop bug bit her hard. After her remarkable performance at the school talent show, Latifa began to link up with a few of her classmates and make music in the women's restroom under the name Ladies Fresh. The less-than-ideal surroundings didn't bother the girls. Finding a fresh sound was what really mattered. When Latifa wasn't pounding on the stall doors, she was beatboxing like a machine, laying down a ripe rhythm for her peers to riff on. But as she banged on the walls, Latifa wasn't looking for a path to fame and fortune with stars in her eyes. Hip-hop was a hobby for her and nothing more. She pictured her real career as a newscaster or lawyer. Mark the 45 King challenged that vision. Down in his studio, he decided he had seen enough of Latifa just standing on the sidelines. Come on now, you know you can rock this jam, he told her one night. 
nudging her to the microphone for a freestyle. Latifah stepped up to the plate and let Mark's beat speak to her. She spoke back with a rap that was not great. The words that tumbled from her lips were awkward and off rhythm. But Latifah wasn't embarrassed. She was emboldened. She sensed that the right rhymes were already inside of her, somewhere. She just needed to practice reaching inside of herself and finding them on demand. And if Latifah could do that, she could rule the world. Most Saturdays were the same for teenage Latifah. Put on a tacky orange, yellow, and brown uniform. Flip a lot of burgers. Clean a few toilets. Ask, do you want fries with that? Until you're blue in the face. Her shifts at Burger King ruled her world every Saturday, right up until 11 p.m. But at 11.01, her transformation began. Latifah would enter the Burger King bathroom as a cashier and cleaner and exit as Newark's connection to New York hip-hop. Tonight, she looked herself up and down in the bathroom mirror. Even in the sterile lighting, Latifah knew she looked fresh as hell. She flexed in her swatch sweatsuit, currently paired with the matching swatch backpack, decked out with a giant clock. Her K-Swiss sneakers squeaked on the clean floor that she herself had mopped only hours earlier. Guest socks peeped out around her ankles. She pulled on a Benetton fisherman's hat like the cherry on top for her ensemble. Latifah knew what to wear and how to wear it, what lingo to use and how to say it, thanks to her weekly pilgrimages through the Lincoln Tunnel. If Saturday nights were her weekly hip-hop education, then her school was the Latin Quarters, located at 48th Street and Broadway. That's where the kids went to learn and where the rising talent went to preach and teach. Around the mid-80s, hip-hop began shouldering new responsibilities as its influence mushroomed across the country, especially along the East Coast. MCs weren't just spitting impressive rhymes anymore. Artists like the Jungle Brothers, KRS-One, and Public Enemy were using their rising platform to say something about what was going on in their neighborhoods. And the Latin Quarters was one of the most accessible places in town to hear their message. After rocking the mic, rappers would often weave through the crowds, mingling and dancing with the kids who fought for their spot to be there. After waiting in massive lines, getting frisked, and forking over a $10 cover charge. Latifah was there for all of it. She witnessed artists like Cool Modi and Run DMC in their prime. She even watched Salt and Pepper bring down the house for the first time. Salt, Pepper, and DJ Spinderella hopped on stage in spandex and thigh-high boots, hair perfectly styled like they were ready for a magazine shoot. As they fed the crowd songs like My Mic Sounds Nice, it was apparent that these women were just as concerned about looking nice. Latifah didn't judge. Hell, she liked looking good, just in a different way. Everyone deserved their own sense of style and self-expression. But Salt and Pepper's more sexual, suited-up look just wasn't for her. Latifah watched powerful women rock the stage that night, but none of them represented her. Not until a duo came out who rocked leisure clothes and sneakers the way she did. And when they came through, they nearly blew the fisherman's cap off Latifah's head. 
Latifa was in awe of the two ladies before her. Their style was nearly a mirror image of her own. They wore Adidas sweatsuits and slicked their hair back into simple ponytails. The MC of the pair wore a fisherman's hat, like she shopped at the same stores as Latifa. They were sweet tea and jazzy joys, and they weren't about any of that picture-perfect bullshit. They were here to rap, not model outfits. Seeing them perform was Latifah's aha moment. When she watched Sweet Tea and Jazzy Joyce on stage, she saw herself. There was no reason she couldn't be rocking the Latin Quarter stage just as well. Latifah took her newfound inspiration back to Mark the 45 King. By now, she was embedded in Mark's crew of friends and colleagues, later known as the Flavor Unit. Between rappers like Chill Rob G., and brothers Apache and Lottie, there were plenty of dudes eager to coach Latifah through rapping and freestyling. Since Latifah was the only woman MC in the group, she crowned herself Princess of the Posse. She liked the title so much that she laid down a track with the same name in 1988. Mark approved, which meant that Princess of the Posse was going places. Places like local radio stations in Orange, New Jersey, who eagerly spun the song from this rising female rapper when such a thing was still considered a novelty. Places like the hands of hip-hop pioneer and host of Yo! MTV Raps, Fab Five Freddy, who pushed the track through to Tommy Boy Records. Label president Monica Lynch dug what she heard. A young woman with a direct style of delivering her bars Attitude slathered with a Jamaican accent and tough-as-nails demeanor. Monica didn't hesitate to ring Latifah to discuss a record deal. She got the big call when she was home with Winky, now fully grown and the self-appointed man of the house. The moment Latifah hung up the phone, she bounded into his room and dove onto his bed, waking him from a nap. He could catch up on Z's another time. It wasn't every day your little sister secured a record deal and a high school diploma in the span of six months. All Latifah needed now was a professionally known-as name to write on the contract. Up until that, she was just known as Latifah, but that felt incomplete. On the other hand, monikers like MC Latifah felt uninspired, or worse, unoriginal. Her name had to honor who she was and what she represented. She was a princess, after all. Pause. Rewind. No, Latifah wasn't a princess. Not anymore. She was a queen. Queen Latifah. Yes. The title wasn't just an assertion of worth and hard-earned confidence. It was an homage to her African foremothers, a feminine stamp on the hip-hop world. I am woman, hear me rhyme. She emanated pride and dominance, but never superiority or materialism. That first check from Tommy Boy didn't change a thing about Latifah's approach to presenting herself, with the exception of a few snapping gold teeth from the mall that she quickly lost. Even as a signed artist, she had just a single gold chain that she shared with her brother. She still loved wearing men's jeans and stealing new pairs from Winky before he had the chance to break them in. 
After buying those ill-fated gold teeth, Latifa took the rest of her check to an African fabric store in downtown Newark and bought a new top and tailor-made pants to match. It was her way of wearing her heritage on her sleeves. Latifa wore that get-up everywhere, especially on tour with the Jungle Brothers, who began calling her Mama Zulu when she strutted across the stage in nothing but her custom outfit, barefoot and bling-free. This queen ruled with her words, not her wardrobe, and listeners respected her priorities. Latifah's goals were clear. As she spit fire, she wanted to ignite the careers of other women and underdogs who were defining the genre. By the late 1980s, hip-hop was cementing itself and everyone started to realize it was no passing craze. The Recording Academy added a Best Rap Performance Award to the Grammys. By now, it was splitting into subgenres like gangster rap, spearheaded by Ice-T and N.W.A., who coincidentally were the same rappers lacing their bars and building themselves up with barbs aimed at women. But it was the 1990s that hip-hop would break through to the mainstream, and Queen Latifah would truly ascend to the throne. It took the Grammys a while to catch up, but in 1991, her debut record All Hell the Queen was nominated for Best Solo Rap Performance. She received nominations in the category for three consecutive years. In 1992 for Fly Girl, and again in 1993 for Latifah's Had It Up To Here, both from her 1991 album Nature of a Sister. By the time she could reckon with the success of her sophomore album, Spike Lee was calling her for a role in his upcoming movie Jungle Fever. With every accomplishment, Queen Latifah's title felt more and more like a self-fulfilling prophecy. She was royalty, especially among other female MCs. Her relevance drew attention to New Jersey's hip-hop scene, which was bursting with fresh talent like Naughty by Nature, Red Mem, and the rest of the flavor unit. No matter how much Latifah traveled and toured, her home state never left her heart especially since she couldn't take her mother and Winky on the road with her. As money from performances and royalties started to stack up, Latifah made sure to send home checks to Rita, effectively reimbursing her for years of support and music lessons. But it was Winky who Latifah truly couldn't wait to repay. Growing up, he was the sibling who took an after-school job and chipped in for expenses. He was the person who gave Latifa a weekly allowance when Rita could not. He was the person whose fearlessness helped her evolve into outspoken royalty, whether they were braving new schools together or cutting class. Winky was the constant in Latifa's life, and for that, she was eternally grateful. When the real money started pouring in, Latifa made it a priority to buy her family a house to share one floor for each person. As a 24th birthday gift for her brother, she bought him a motorcycle so they could race down the road together. Sometimes they'd ride with a crew of more than 100 bikers, pushing the needles of their speedometers into the red. Other times, like tonight, they zipped over together to Manhattan, just the two of them, to pick up lighting and plumbing fixtures for their new family home. When Latifa and Winky flew up the road together like this, moving as one, 
they felt mostly at ease. Mostly. There was another anxious feeling burrowing in her stomach. A vague sense of panic that never seemed to leave her, no matter how hard she hit the gas. Latifa was suspicious. She worried that this much happiness would come at a heavenly price she'd have to pay someday. But that day wasn't today. She weaved around her brother on the highway and tried to let the breeze lift her worries away. Sometimes the breeze from a nice day was all it took to ground Latifa and separate her from her royal hustle. Spring was dawning on New Jersey in 1992, and after a European tour, Latifa was ready to slip into the comfort of her pre-fame life. Change permeated the air. Architects and interior designers worked to furnish the home Latifa had purchased to share with Rita and Winky. In the meantime, one of her pals was moving to Jersey City and needed help hoisting a sofa up a few flights of stairs. Humbling work for a queen. But Latifa rolled up her sleeves and chipped in alongside their crew. For the moment, she only had to worry about the weight of the sofa instead of the weight of her crown. Then Latifa got a 911 page from Winky's friend. She rushed to the phone for more details. Your brother had an accident on his motorcycle, his friend told Latifa. She couldn't stop herself from asking the big question. Is it bad? I think so. He spoke softly, like he didn't want to admit it. The mangled motorcycle outside of the hospital told Latifa everything she needed to know. She studied the Kawasaki Ninja ZX-7 with horror. If this was what the bike looked like, she didn't dare imagine what the incident did to her brother. Her gut churned. She bought Winky that bike. It seemed like the perfect gift at the time. The gift of adventure for a certified thrill seeker. A small thank you to her brother. But Winky was so much more than that. He was Latifa's protector, her hero. The only man who ever loved her unconditionally. She and Winky shared something beyond brotherhood or sisterhood. They were two Pisces, two halves of the same whole like twins, even though there were two years in between them. And right now, the other half of her was in peril, and Latifa wasn't so sure she'd ever get him back. The hospital was silent as a grave. Winky's friends sat with their heads hanging low. They didn't have the stomach to tell Latifa what happened, so Rita mustered the strength to fill her in. Winky had collided with a car, then was tossed underneath it with his motorcycle. Latifa's racing thoughts became frantic prayers. Please, Lord, please make it all right. I'll do anything. In the operating room, a team of emergency medical professionals went above and beyond to make it all right. They cracked open Winky's chest to pump his heart manually. They used two times the amount of blood they would under normal circumstances but there was just too much damage to piece back together. 
Latifah had found the silence in the room agonizing, but a few words from the doctor shattered her world. I'm sorry, he's gone. Latifah's heart couldn't accept that answer. No, he is not! You ain't telling me this crap! Then all the fear she tried to escape was in the room with her, fully realized. It had trailed her to Europe and back. It chased her on her motorcycle rides, always close behind, up until this moment. Tears blurred her vision, the pain like a knife in her chest. Years later, Latifah still describes it as, without a doubt, the worst moment of her life. Fuck the Grammy nominations, the record sales, the fame. Fuck the money. Fuck everything that ever led to her buying a death trap for the person she called her hero and twin. Resentment stewed inside Latifah's chest. Her brother was dead. And along with him, the song inside her, her motivation for any of it. She just stopped caring. Her artistry stalled and sputtered out like the wrecked engine on Winky's motorcycle. She took turns blaming herself and God for the accident. Grief threatened to swallow Latifah whole, and for a while it actually did. She was adrift, without an anchor for the first time in her life. Grief crowded her headspace, forcing away any lingering optimism or positivity. She dumped her boyfriend and instead made fast friends with weed, alcohol, and cigarettes. She would stay out all night, ostensibly partying, but really just numbing herself to both pain and pleasure. Numbness helped her navigate the media and the public, who treated her mourning period with a level of nonchalance that was downright disrespectful. Fans begged for autographs and expressed their condolences in the same breath like her brother's death was just a footnote in their own brush with fame. Latifah wanted to fire back. You don't care about me. You don't care about my brother. All you care about is your stupid autograph. She restrained herself every time through a combination of detachment and regal grace. But she inevitably walked away each time feeling a little less human. The fans weren't the only ones asking too much of her. Latifah was under contract to deliver an album to Motown Records, and the clock was ticking. Leveling up to such a legendary record label should have been an exhilarating prospect. But she couldn't think about the future, or career prospects, or anything that wasn't winky. She was stuck in the painful cycle of chasing someone who wasn't coming back. So she tried chasing him the only way she could remember doing she got back on her bike. Latifah retraced the same roads that she once traveled with her brother, solo this time. But she didn't feel like she was alone. She swore her brother was beside her, asking her to ride again, spurring her, as he always had, to live again. If she wanted to fulfill those wishes, she'd have to get back in the studio. But inspiration found her before she could get there. Latifah struggled to keep her eyes open as she powered through another all-nighter. Not the partying kind, the songwriting kind. 
She scribbled down more lyrics on the notebook she had with her. The words weren't coming easy, but she wasn't going to put down her pen until she was done. By 5 a.m., she swore she had the final product. Latifa rushed downstairs to show her mother. She and Rita had finally settled into the home Latifa purchased to share with her family, the one Winky would never live in. The new song in Latifa's hands was a bandage over her heart, one of many she would write as she grappled with her grief. She woke up her mother just to share the good news, an echo of the day she interrupted Winky's nap when Tommy Boy came calling. She called her creation Winky's theme. It was half poignant rap, half powerful pipes, and all emotion. The song filled Latifa with a renewed sense of responsibility. Her next record wouldn't be just an obligation to a bunch of record executives. It was an obligation to herself and Winky, whose spirit she could feel beside her through every step of the recording process. Latifa began to trade the parties for studio time. Songs started to trickle out of her like little miracles. Before long, she had enough material to make the album that Motown wanted. She titled it Black Rain. Whether she realized it or not, she was about to rain like never before. Queen Latifah used Black Rain to make the music she needed to hear in those vulnerable moments of mourning. Winky's theme was a work of art on its own. A jazzy, expansive piece of Latifah's soul, a hymn to her brother. She felt herself healing every time she heard the song. And every time she wore his motorcycle key around her neck on a chain, be it in a music video for all to see or at home in private, Black Rain was created for that purpose, to heal herself. In the end, it energized women across the globe, especially the women of hip-hop. Latifah's third album went back to the beginning of her life, before she was a queen, and before she was even Latifah, Black Rain went back to the heart of everything Dana Owens was about. Respect. She didn't have to accept anyone's name or label for her, whether she was a rugged eight-year-old being called a tomboy or a fully grown woman being called a bitch or a hoe. By the early 1990s, gangster rap had desensitized a generation of musicians and their fans to vulgar and pointless misogynistic language. Those words were trendy, common, no big deal. Queen Latifah thought otherwise. Who you calling a bitch? She fired off in her song, U-N-I-T-Y, the first single from Black Rain. The queen didn't mince her words, strongly suggesting that you watch your damn mouth. U-N-I-T-Y was a major piece of what made 1993 a pivotal year for women in hip-hop. MC Light dropped her album, Ain't No Other, while Salt and Pepper snagged their biggest hit with Shoop on their record, Very Necessary. Moni Love chimed in with her project, In a Word or Two. The trio, Diggable Planet, which included the MC Ladybug Mecca, dropped their debut that year too. As women's presence in hip-hop grew stronger, so did their messages. For years, women who rapped used their music just to prove that they belonged in hip-hop at all. Now they didn't have to prove themselves. 
they could rap about the issues that colored their reality. Assault, misogyny, objectification, pregnancy. And they weren't being shy about any of it, Queen Latifah included. UNITY encouraged men to reevaluate the way they treated women, but it also made women realize that they never had to accept abuse or disrespect. The song became even more impactful when it earned Queen Latifah a Grammy for Best Rap Solo Performance, making her the first woman ever to win in that category. But Latifah's work was far from finished. 1993 brought more blessings, but it brought challenges too. Latifah got her own sitcom, Living Single, that year, officially branching into a full-fledged acting career. And yet she still wasn't on equal footing with men in the entertainment industry. While the Fox network was okay with the idea of centering a show around a black woman, it was apparently not okay with that same woman debuting a music video on air during the show's time slot. Yet Will Smith had already done the same thing during his show, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air on NBC. Hell, Fox had even aired a Bart Simpson music video three years earlier after an episode of The Simpsons. Despite the infuriating discrepancy, Living Single helped the public see Queen Latifah as a figure beyond hip-hop. She was a musician and actress, capable of commanding scenes in TV comedies or serious movies like Set It Off, the 1996 movie that cast her in the iconic role Cleo, the movie's resilient martyr and hero. Or maybe anti-hero, depending on who you ask. By the turn of the century, Queen Latifah was known just as well for her acting chops as her blunt bars. Musical roles in major productions like Hairspray in Chicago allowed her to flex her entire skill set. But over time, her acting career dominated the show. To a new generation, Queen Latifah was an astounding Oscar-nominated actress who could also sing. But this isn't about that perception of Queen Latifah. This is about an artist who managed to become a triple threat, a gifted singer, rapper, and actor. A woman who built a platform by building up other women and ruling with unfiltered honesty. A musician who wasn't afraid to reject the growing influence of materialism and misogynistic language. A queen who fought for her crown, fought for her own peace, and fought on behalf of women across the globe. And won every time. This is About a Girl. About a Girl is produced by Scott Janovitz and executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sattler for Double Elvis. The show was created by Eleanor Wells and hosted by me, Nikki Lynette. This episode was written by Victoria Waslack. For sources used in this episode, go to aboutagirlpod.com. Music by Scott Janovitz and Matt Tahaney with additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker. The show is on Instagram at aboutagirlpod, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Nikki Lynette. This is Nikki Lynette, host of About a Girl. I'm excited to tell our listeners and fans of the show that About a Girl has been honored with a Silver Signal Award for Best Podcast in Arts and Culture. I was also personally honored with the Silver Signal Award for Best Podcast Host. 
The Signal Awards are all about recognizing and elevating the art of the podcast. We are thrilled to be recognized in the Signal Awards inaugural year. Thank you for listening and supporting the show. Shout out to iHeart, Double Elvis, and to our amazing producer, Scott Janovich, for their dedication to About a Girl.